Whereas before, I mean, because I can't plan trips. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. Like that is a huge piece of who I am. Hard to stay put. It's hard to stay put and, and update people about what it means to be staying put. This is Foreign Or, a look into the lives of expats, nomads, and third culture kids of all kinds. Each episode, I chat with one foreigner and cross-examine that individual to determine if they're really all that different. Today, I sit down with super connector Andrea Hunt, a former reporter in China turned life coach in Germany. We get into expat axes, freedom versus stability abroad, and what to do when the plan doesn't go according to plan. Hi, my name is Andrea Hunt, and I'm a transformational life coach for expats. I'm from Minnesota originally, and now I'm living in Munich, Germany. The trips or vacations that I've done are usually kind of defining the time points in my year. Like, oh, that was around Easter when I went to Portugal, and then in the summer I went to Tanzania that year, and then in the fall that's where I went to like Slovenia or whatever. Okay, so give me a timeline. Once upon a time, you were born in one place. So, once upon a time, I was born in Durham, North Carolina. Ah, I didn't know that. And yet, have never lived there except for being born. That was there for like a year of my life. Do okay. not remember, obviously, as a baby. Um, and then we moved to Athens, Georgia. Mm-hmm. So I've actually lived kind of my life in the U.S. was kind of half and half from Minnesota to Georgia, because I was in Georgia until I was eight, and then. We moved to Minnesota and I was in Rochester, Minnesota till I was 20. And then I left, moved to Mexico um, and the UK. And when I moved back after Mexico, then I moved to Georgia, back to Athens, Georgia to go to school. I have a question. You went to Mexico and the UK as like a, is that a new country that I don't know about? No, I was, I was living in like San Miguel de Allende. And um, I went there. Did we talk about that? I went to a wedding there. Did I already say that? Did you? No. Did I? Maybe that was on the timeline prior to me knowing or after, I guess. Whoa, it's a beautiful place. Yeah, it's amazing. Like I had just left Minnesota and I was just like, oh my God, this is a paradise. Like yeah. it was sunny. It was like oh, yeah. really wonderful. That was 98. Oh my goodness. Um, and I did Spanish classes and photography classes and life drawing. And then I, when I went, I went to the UK to London to do volunteer work. And then I decided to move back to Mexico got it also because I had an ex there and (laughs) and so and then I went to university there for like I think like a year there and then I moved back to to go to university in the United States so I was in Athens Georgia Mm -hmm. for my four-year degree um and during that time I was taking so I already spoke Spanish but I did like some literature courses and when I had applied for the journalism school it was like a separate college it's called Grady and I realized that um, I had to wait until like the next year in order to get in. So I applied, but like, I don't know, the timing was all weird. So I had some extra time to do some elective credits. And I was just like, I'm going to Argentina and I'm going to Italy. So, <laughs> and I remember telling my dad this because I was just like, so I have some news. <laughs> you know, and we're like, <laughs> we would go out like to eat steak on Tuesdays at, <clears throat> at Alpex Steakhouse, right? And I was just like, okay, so. The cool news is I applied to Grady College for journalism. That's looking good. I got everything submitted. The problem is the cutoff date is actually had already passed. So I can't go this year. And he was just like, 
what do you mean? Like, so what are you going to do now? I'm like, oh, oh, I've covered that. So I'm going to keep getting my elective credits in Spanish and Italian. And he's just kind of like, okay, like, oh God, like, where's this going? And I'm like, so I signed up for our you know, Spanish classes in Buenos Aires and I'll be going there for, for several months. And then I'm going to go to Rome for several months and focus on my Italian. And then I'll come back here in the summer and work. And then I'll start my journalism school in September. And he's just kind of like, you know, the blank, like blink, blink, like, oh my God. Okay. <sighs> and it's just while eating steak at Outback. I mean, I think that's a yes. good segue. Like, dad, do you like steak? You know how much I like steak. Argentina has great steak. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was working in a Mexican restaurant at the time, like, which was really good because I could keep up my Spanish, even though my, my ex-boyfriend was Mexican. So we spoke Spanish all the time, but I wanted to like, really really learn it <laughs> so why why did you choose argentina instead of going back to mexico or any of the other hispanoatlantic countries in the world <laughs> like spain which is great and also you're such an inspiration because i don't speak enough spanish <laughs> so lazy this is so it, basically just telling yourself you're going to do it every day and putting yourself in a situation where you uh can maybe look where you're the odd one out really yeah until you speak the language it's so hard to do that and it's almost impossible to do that when you're learning in a classroom setting so you you continued your spanish learning through being a waitress but then why did you choose argentina so it was interesting i took a uh, i needed to have some history credits and so i took um history of latin america 1850 to present and it was absolutely fascinating because I feel like I, at least in Minnesota and our curriculum, did not really learn anything about Latin America, especially like modern Latin America, like political situations and like society and also like the U.S. influence there, unfortunately, which is extremely negative, which I was not aware of. Mm -hmm. But um, I was really fascinated by Argentina because of like the Spanish, Italian and Portuguese immigrants that were there and like founded Buenos Aires and that they created it to look like their, you know, major capital cities in Europe. And the history of Argentina was really, really interesting to me. Um, I just thought like Peron and then everything that happened, like they had like the dirty war and they had like a dictatorship there and like all these people disappeared, like a really tragic um, historical piece. And then they were completely like one of the most, you know, developed countries in South America. And then in 2001, they had like this horrible economic crisis and like their peso just yep. um, completely got devalued. And in in a situation like that where you have like if it were the united states like people would still continue to lend the money but the I, imf was like nope no more money for you and so their economy completely crashed and all of these people lost their life savings like literally overnight and so i don't know i was just like that sounds like a really interesting place i think i'll try to take some literature courses mm. and like photography um and i had the time and also i have to say that it was like they had they have opposite seasons obviously like in south america and i was like i can avoid winter <laughs> like i can avoid winter by going to some place with an opposite season every minnesota thought how do i get out of this shit or at least shorten yes. my time spent in snow yes and this is this is a pattern with me like hmm where can i go that's warm like <laughs> um, so you go um you study literature spanish literature Yep. It was Spanish literature. So yeah, I was down there and I, I was down there for a few months and I absolutely loved it. So I went back 
another time, like I went back the next year or the year after, I can't remember. And then after my graduation, I also went back to South America and I stayed there for like, it was like six to eight months. Um, but then I was like kind of using Buenos Aires more as a base. Like I lived in a hostel, like with a bunch of Colombians, it was awesome. Um, they had like, you know, we had barbecues like all the time because it was like hostels and uh, the World Cup was going on. And Ooh. I used Buenos Aires as a base to go to like Bolivia and Peru. Okay, the last time you went to South America, what year was that? 2006. Okay, so you had this love affair with this uh, Spanish language and many of the countries that uh, have it as its native tongue. What happened after 2006? So this is where it gets interesting. <laughs> I think it's already really interesting. I need you to get boring so I don't have so many questions. So, well, okay, so here's the thing. When I went to go to South America after I graduated, I um, was still with my ex at the time. Things were kind of going really, really downhill. And I was going to go to South America for a few months by myself. During that time, we broke up. And so I was like, well, I don't have any reason to go back. So this is when I was in Bolivia. And I met a girl named Amy who was in the hostel. And she was American. And she had been teaching English in Korea. And I was like, that is really interesting. Like, how did you get a job in Asia teaching English? Like, are you a teacher? She goes, no, she's, she's like, in most places, if you have a four-year college degree, they'll take you. And basically I've been saving money for a year and now I'm doing South America for a year. And I was like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm like, but, but for me, like I had studied Chinese as a kid. So culturally for me, if I was going to go to Asia, it would be to go to China. Mm. Um, and I had also done a study program in Beijing the year before in 2005, but just only for like a month. And I was like, if I'm going to go back, I would definitely like to go back to Beijing because I want to do like, you know, learn Putonghua and, you know, not have, not struggle with like another dialect or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I stayed in South America. I came back to Athens, Georgia, and I started just like applying for teaching jobs in China. I was like, I, I could do this. Like I got my TEFL online that summer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was like a three-month program or something like that while I was applying and I got something and so then I moved to China in 2006 but the whole plan originally was for me to go back to Buenos Aires that was my plan I was going to move back and like I love Buenos Aires it's one of my favorite cities on the planet like amazing and um so I was like okay I'll just go and teach in China for maybe like six months to a year and then I'm going to go to Southeast Asia check out Thailand, check out Laos, you know, all of those amazing countries. <laughs> and then I'm going to go back to Buenos Aires. This is my plan. Okay. Didn't happen. <laughs> so what, ha what happened was I was teaching for, at, um, in Juji and Zhejiang for like one year. And it was a, you know, Chinese village of a million people mm -hmm. where there were five foreigners. Um, I didn't even know that at the beginning. I thought I was the only one because I hadn't seen any other ones <laughs> like and I found and I literally found this girl Rhiannon on MySpace like we're still friends and I, I was I saw the shoes and I was like oh my god are you here too like we have to go get dumplings like, immediately <laughs> please <laughs> and so <laughs> I think I looked probably a bit desperate to be honest because I had been spending the last couple months like alone at home and mm -hmm. I had um Chinese colleagues who were like super nice like we would go out to eat and stuff like that but we always did it very early. It was like around like six o'clock at night and I would be home by seven or seven 30. And it was a Friday night and I'm like, okay, so 
so I just started looking for people on on MySpace. You know, like there was a Jijang like expat group, and I was like, oh my god, there are more of us. You know, <laughs> there are three more. Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is that kind of changed everything because I I met met this group, and so we were like five expats then within a million people and that was actually cool because then I felt a lot more um I don't know it had been really really hard the like the first couple months I mean I remember getting picked up from the airport you know um in in Hangzhou and they took me back and it was really late at night and I was like totally disoriented and jet lagged and they just like showed me to my room and then like you know okay so we'll see you in the morning for breakfast and blah 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 don't leave. You can't leave. You're here. <laughs> and like, and I, and I sat, I literally sat there down on my bed and I cried. I was just like, <gasps> Oh my God, AJ, like, and this has happened to me twice. Like I did this when I moved to Mexico at 20 and <laughs> I did this, like, this was, I was uh, 27 or eight. I just sat there on my bed and like, Oh my God, I am either crazy or I am just a total idiot. Like you've really done it now, Andrea. Like you have really done it. Like <laughs> you don't even know where you are. <laughs> You're somewhere in the middle of Zhejiang. No one knows this province. You know, like. <laughs> oh. So what is the point where you got you made all these plans and got really excited and had an idea from this friend? I mean, she was in Korea, but you know, you kind of knew what you were getting into. Like, what was the, what was the culture shock? Like, what was that thing that made you cry? I, I, I moved to China because I couldn't handle my breakup. Like, to be honest, like I came back to the United States and I, I was just like, everything reminds me of him. I cannot do this. I don't know where I need to go, but I need to go as far away from everything that I know that could, could possibly <laughs> remind me of anything. I need to start fresh. And I, I need to go to China to do it. And it's funny how many people have done this because China yes. seems to be the place where you're like, break up, divorce, move to China. Start over. <laughs> you know? I, I swear like everybody, okay, I won't say everybody, but let's say like 90% of the people, like they'll be like, oh, I was really interested in Chinese culture and I love Chinese food and I got a job offer. And you're like, did you have a break? And they're like, how did you know? <laughs> like, cause that's why we're all here. It's like, <laughs> my instinct is usually to do something. And um, that's something that I've had to learn over the years as well. Like, you know, how to sit in something, you know, think about it, be reflective. Don't just like do something and jump into something mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. thinking. So what happens after you wake up the next morning in Zhejiang? Uh, how did you get through those two months? Like what got you through culture shock? Cause we'll get to it, but you are, currently talking to people about these same issues thinking mm -hmm. of yourself in that moment when you're 20 in your 20s after a breakup and like in this super foreign place all alone what would you tell your 20 something year old self to do or to feel or to think that's a good question <laughs> i mean the, the thing is is like weirdly that decision was one of like the two best decisions that I've ever made in my life, you know? Um, I feel like I've never, I've never had these like smooth transitions in my life. It's always kind of like, okay, this is done. Now you have to do something else. Or like, you know, this is an opportunity. You either take it or leave it. And so like, I feel that everything in my life has been kind of like that. And that was one of the decisions where when I got offered the job, 
this was all in like two weeks. Like literally like I applied for this job. Like I got the visa, I got my passport updated. And two weeks later I was on a plane and like, you know, completely starting my life um, in another country. Like I had never been to Zhejiang. I had only been to Beijing. I was terrified. Um, I think though, in the end, it made me much more aware of my resilience and capabilities as a person and as an independent woman, because I like, I did it. Like I had to be like, okay, like this was a decision that I made. I have to, I have to handle this. <laughs> I, I, I can't, you know, break down and go home. Like this is the decision that I made for myself. And anyway, like I didn't have so much savings at that time anyway, because I had just, I came back from South America with very little. I worked for the summer just enough to like kind of be able to move to China and stuff like that. Um, so I think like that initial period of trying to set yourself up in a new country is just so hard. Like, I feel like you don't know how to do basic things, like get a phone, like you don't know how to like get internet, like you don't know. And especially like my computer was all in Chinese and I literally like for, for several weeks, I couldn't, <laughs> like I knew where things were kind of on the computer. I mean, as a Windows computer, but like I was never really sure what I was doing. And it's just such a, um, a jolting feeling of feeling so helpless suddenly when I would like to think of myself as a capable person. But to your original question, I think that I would just tell myself like, literally like, you've got this, you can figure it out. And if you can do this, you can do absolutely anything. Juji crowd up to Beijing for the MIDI festival. I think it was nice. a MIDI like rock music festival. <gasps> and that was 2007. And that was like, I absolutely fell in love with Beijing. Like I was so amazed at like all of the different kinds of really cool Chinese people and like the bands and the music and like the diversity of the people in Beijing. Cause obviously I was living in like, you know, this village of a million people, but it was like pretty like, you know, I mean, it's a small town, like people are kind of tend to be the same and there wasn't any diversity at all. Mm -hmm. And being in a big city like Beijing and just all of the different areas and the hutongs and the cool little bars and the hutongs and the music festival and like just people, yeah, the options and like meeting other expats in Beijing. Like I met so many people, um, some of whom like, I'm like still in contact with. Where was Midi? Do you remember? Haidian? Okay. Wow. It was up like north of BLCU. Yeah, it was way in the middle of nowhere. Um, okay. Midi. God. Okay. So you, 2007, you go there. And then did you have to go back to uh, Zhejiang? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to go back. And then I was like, no, like I, I love <laughs> living in China, but I just realized that if I was going to be in China, I really needed to be in a, in a bigger city, like just with different stuff going around. And, yeah. and Shanghai was in that city? No. Interesting. Um, no, I don't know. Like, it, it's weird. Like, I find Shanghai very beautiful. And, but there's something about Beijing that I, like, the, the gritty authenticity of Beijing, I really love. And Shanghai seemed a bit more polished. And I like it. It's just, it doesn't hold this, like, special place in my heart, like Beijing. Like, I love the hutongs. And I, I just find it, like, 
very culturally interesting. I like the Beijing Huar, Huar, like, <laughs> you know, I, I, um, and I like the food better in Beijing. I know that, I mean, that shouldn't make a difference, but I, I find no, that- the, It absolutely makes a difference. No, but I, because I find that the food in, in Zhejiang is very blah. Like if you compare mm-hmm. it to like, you know, Yunnan food or Sichuan food, and Sichuan, by the way, is like, that's my favorite. Um, and also like, you know, Xinjiang food. But I, I just, um, I find the Shanghai- and also Hangzhou cooking to be very bland. Yeah. It's not. Well, I think, cause I've done many a cooking shows. So there's like this approach to cooking in the, the different regions. And I think in the Zhejiang, like Jiangsu region, it's like much more about a, a softer palate. Like, so you're mm. not having super spicy or super salty or super sweet, but you have softer flavors that are supposed to be delicious and subtle. Mm-hmm. If it's not done well, then it just tastes like that, and there's no. Yeah, I mean it's it's good. I just like if I'm in, comparing it to other kinds of Chinese cuisine, I would never p- pick that one, for mm-hmm. example. Like, because I just for me, like I love like Yunnan and Sichuan food, just like these all these different flavors and like sour and like you know sweet and um there there's like this Yunnan restaurant, the Imo Town, and it was this moss. It was tree moss. And they had served it, and it was cold, like a salad with garlic and vinegar on it mm-hmm. and like lemon or something like that. That was amazing. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm like, ooh, moss with garlic <laughs> and vinegar. That, that is a good idea. I, I would like you're... two mosses, please. Big portions of moss. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so we were in Zhejiang and then you finished in Zhejiang. And mm-hmm. then what happened? How did you make the transition? So then I, so I did like a, um, a trip around China. I did like, I took like a, like a month and a half or something like that, like a month or two to kind of go around China and, um, went to Yunnan, went to Sichuan, went down to Guangzhou, um, and like Yangshuo. I met up with like some friends in Yangshuo. That was amazing because I love the karst landforms. And then you can like, you know, be on a bamboo raft and have beers. And it's like just very picturesque, like, you know, China looking. But I moved to Beijing and I decided to do three months at BLCU at like the Beijing Language Cultures University um, just to brush up on my Chinese because at, at that point I had been, it was funny because the people in Beijing told me that I, that I spoke Chinese like a Chinese farmer, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, because that was the accent that I was like picking up in Zhejiang because instead of saying like, um, mm-hmm. like, are you a teacher? They'd be like, Nisha Lao Shi Ma. And apparently I was like, and they were, they thought it was like very cute, but like, they were like, maybe, I don't know, learning some Beijing (laughs) Chinese would be better. (laughs) And um, so I was there for three months. And then during that time, that was already 2008. And I found an internship working for uh, DMG. It was just like this big advertising agency because they needed somebody in their office for the time of the Olympics, because like um, they had this PR guy that was working out of London and for the Olympics, they had like all these campaign rollouts and stuff like that. And so they're like, okay, we need an intern to like help manage this during the Olympics. And I was like, this will be amazing because I want to, I want to be here, you know, for the Olympics. That was definitely one of like the high points of my life. I felt like everything was happening in Beijing and the whole spotlight was happening. Like, 
everyone was so focused on China and trying so hard to understand what was happening there. And I felt like I was really fortunate to feel like a part of something and be like, I live here. Like, this is awesome. Like I, <laughs> I love being, um, being able to see this part of history, I guess China kind of opens up. And I just remember being down, like I was in Wampujing with, um, some like expat and Chinese friends and we were all down there watching the opening ceremony on the huge screen that they had mm-hmm. watching. and like I mean I don't know how many thousands of people were down there just watching it and I just remember thinking like this is amazing like I can't believe that I'm I'm still here you know that I'm mm-hmm. still in China and I get to see this um and also it was cool seeing how proud the Chinese people were of like I mean because the opening ceremony to this day I have never seen anybody do anything even close to that, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the opening ceremonies after that. And I think that that was, you know, their intention as well. Like we will. Ceremony, everybody you know, ceremonies. <laughs> Who invented fireworks? Yes. This guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so 2008, your life is the best life ever. Winning. <laughs> I don't know if it was the, the best life ever. I mean, I had a lot oh, of- Oh, it's the best life. <laughs> I mean- but um, I did get to move into the into the center of the city because I had been living up in, in Heidi and so I got to move to Gongti, <laughs> which was amazing, into the pink castle um, building where I lived for like almost six years. Wow. And, but then like um, basically the global financial crisis happened like right after the Beijing Olympics, like two months later. And I remember thinking like, oh god this is gonna be bad (laughs) and I and I remember talking to my dad and he was just like you know what he's like if you want my honest opinion everything is like the shit's gonna hit the fan here in the U.S. like and it's probably gonna be even worse in South America so this is probably not a good time to come back if you can find work in China and you can like stay there and you've got a visa I would try to ride this out and see what's gonna happen because he's like, there's nothing for you to come back to right now. Like they're, you know, they had already kind of started like massive layoffs and stuff like that in the United States. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to stay. Like I had a job. I mean, the thing was um, that that contract was ending or whatever. And then I got a job for E-China Cities, like writing, which is what I really wanted to do anyway. Like I really wanted to like write about my thoughts as an expat and my observations and my funny little stories that like don't make sense to most people, unless you've lived in China, when you have all these like, wait, what just happened moments? Like, like, <laughs> and like, or like having a bad China day or like, you know, TIC, this is China, like those kind of moments. Being able to write about that was like just cleansing to my soul to be able to share my experiences with other people. But then, yeah, so I just decided to stay. Um, it wasn't like a conscious decision that I said, okay, I'll, I'll stick it out like two to three, four more years. I just kind of made the peace with the idea that like Argentina would have to wait and I would just um see what happened I mean and that turned into like another six years you know what I mean so like I mean I was there almost seven uh, total yeah um six years in Beijing you became a super connector when I met you you knew all the great places you knew all the great people um and you just wanted to share that, which is so important. It's so important in, in the life of an expat, especially a new. So mm-hmm. how did you get to that place? You, I think at the beginning, my loneliness in China was really difficult. And I didn't want anybody to feel like that. And especially in Beijing, 
I feel like it's one of the most open places for expats. They're just, they're so welcoming. And I don't always say like to new people, if I met them, like, Hey, you can come out like with our friends. But like, if that person is willing to be like, you know, open-minded and kind of, you know, extroverted and talk to people, people are so open and welcoming. You know, if you're the kind of person where you're like, okay, I have a chance to talk to all these people, but I won't do it. Then it's like, obviously you, you're going to have more, more issues making friends. And it is difficult because like, like, I'm not even, I didn't used to be so extroverted. And then China was like, I need, I need to have friends. I want to have friends. Okay, like, I can do this. I can do this. I need, I to, I need to get past this. this and challenge myself because otherwise I'm not going to have any friends and that doesn't work for me. <laughs> so, um, so the eChina cities, uh, I mean, could you write about stuff that you wanted or did that mostly live in emails? And I had a blog. I don't know if you had a blog, but like those were my blog days where it was for my family. And I was like, guys, I don't think you understand. Let me try and explain. Yeah, I, think, I think you shared your blog. It was okay. Um, no, I, I didn't have like my own blog yet um, or anything like that. I mean, everything that I wrote about, because each kind of cities, I mean, we had to put out like two articles a day. Like it was just almost, like really random things. And because um, there were only a few writers. And okay. yeah, that was actually a really good job. I mean, like for the most part, um, he was quite flexible with what we wrote about as long as we weren't like critical towards the current Chinese government. Or like, I remember that I wrote one article on um it was about domestic abuse because china had just passed this law that um to make you know more consequences for men who actually you know were um, physically abusive to their spouses and stuff Mm. like that which i thought was a really good step because the rate of domestic violence in china is quite high actually but i remember that like i wrote that article and i had to be very careful to be like domestic abuse is a worldwide global problem that every country has right and this is how china is dealing with it instead of domestic abuse is a huge problem in china and right. you know right. um <clears throat> and i was doing that but like i had wanted to work for the radio yeah and, um, i had no radio experience i didn't study that or anything like that but that's what my goal was yeah and it was funny so like even when i was at china cities like I kept kind of applying, you know, to this radio job, you know, because I didn't have any experience, but I was just like, I really, really want to do this. And so like, yeah. one of the, the main like HR guys at, <laughs> at CRI, I had written him several times. His name was Pitchman. I was just like, hi, like, just wanted to see if like, there's any job that I could do or whatever. Like, I really love, you know, radio station. Blah, blah, blah. And he was just like, do you have any radio experience or anything? Like, and I was like, no, but I have a communications, you know, background and I'm, you know, worked as a journalist and, and he was just like, you know, I, I totally don't think that you're really qualified, but I just have to meet you because like, you're just really persistent. And I think, you know, why don't you just come in and we'll just talk, you know? And I was like, yeah, totally go come in. So he was just like, well, so what's your, you know, what's your interest in the radio? I'm like, I don't know. I've always wanted to, to be on the radio. I know I don't have any experience. I actually kind of did more like video production stuff. I'm like, but I, I write, you know, and I would really love to be able to do like reports instead of these, you know, articles that I do. And he saw like some of my articles. He's like, oh, these are kind of interesting. And like, I like how, cause I just knew so many people. I had like, like this huge network for professional Super and social. Connector. And plus it's like, people are always doing so many interesting things in Beijing. You know, I would do something like, here are some Germans who are teaching tango lessons to Chinese people. 
isn't this interesting? I find this cool. Do you, do you find this interesting too? <laughs> and I, I basically would tell him uh, this and he was just like, I tell you what I'm going to do. He goes, so we don't have anything right now in terms of like the different shows that we have, because they had like Beijing hour and they had Beijing drive. He goes, but what you could do, I could hire you as kind of like a Beijing, like an expat reporter kind of person. He's like, you could kind of be in charge of like just deciding what you want to do. Like, you know, we have to approve it and stuff like that. And then they can integrate those into the, the shows themselves. Oh. So that's what I did. So they, so they basically like, reporter. yeah. And yeah. so I would just do like what my friends are doing or, you know, I don't know, fundraising or volunteer works or, um, and it was really cool because I got almost total flexibility to do it on whatever I wanted. I mean, sometimes they would have like, okay, we need you to like go cover this event or something, but this is my follow-up question. Do you think that you could be doing stories like that now? Like, or that you would have that relationship with your, with your media company where you're just like, hey guys, I got an idea. Cool. All right. I'll have it to you in a week. But which media company? I mean, like, so- Any media I company in China. Is there something now that you think that you, that wouldn't fly, that they'd be like, sorry, this isn't allowed? Um, no, I think it would be fine because I was very careful to avoid politically sensitive topics. I mean, I did more like lifestyle reports. I was, um, because the only time that I even mentioned Ai Weiwei, for example, like there was a, a day without art um, thing that I did because two of my friends were running a, an art, like an art school that was in 798. And they had this whole like day without art thing. It started in New York City because of the people who had gotten infected with HIV. And it was kind of like a memoriam that they like cover, they shroud the statues. Um, to kind of bring attention to the artists who have died from, from AIDS. And so it was a really like nice idea and it was well-received and everything like that until I got to a part where she had mentioned that they had shrouded Ai Weiwei's statue. And the very mention of Ai Weiwei mean, meant that I had to like, this was like 15 minutes before it was gonna go live on air. And I had to go and um, cut that part out, like re-upload it, send it back to the webmaster for approval. And this is all like in 10 minutes, like seriously, just because I had mentioned him. Um, and what year was that? 2000 and like 11, 10 or 11, maybe. Wow. Probably 11. Um, but I, I purposely kind of stayed away from those things because like they really trusted me to be able to do the content that I found interesting and they really were interested in my stories they were like oh this is really interesting like and I didn't want to break that trust by like let's try to do a political thing like and, I've, and I know that there are a lot of people who who did that like they would get like a you know a job working for China Daily and then get super upset that they tried to publish an article about corruption in China and being mad that it like wasn't allowed it's like dude you know where you are like <clears throat> is your stuff still up i'm on there for our they had like a chinese learning platform where they had little videos and so it was like buying a mobile phone <sighs> and so it's me going to the mall and buying a mobile phone <laughs> which was what phone what what model it was a it was like an old nokia i mean yeah. this was like 2011 or something like that so who else is still in beijing that you know um not not many. I mean, like, like maybe three people in Beijing. Yeah. Um, I love Beijing, but whoo, 
that pollution. Yeah, 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 yeah. People love to talk about it. And that was one of the big reasons why I left that and the traffic. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also just the constant bronchitis. Like, I mean, in Beijing, like, I mean, I remember just talking to people and you're like, it's, it's just completely normal to have like bronchitis eight times a year, you know? And I mean, the, the environment in Beijing after a while, it just started becoming kind of physically unhealthy for me. Like, I remember that, like, I mean, in Germany, just arriving to like Bavaria, it's like lush green mountains and beautiful rivers and these like crystal glacial streams or whatever. And I just remember being in, in Bavaria the first day and just being on the porch and being like, <sighs> like, this is the most wonderful air that I could ever ask for in my entire life. And now I have this appreciation for clean air. It made me into this total like nature person, hiker. And I, I'm also older. So I understand that like, you know, your priorities kind of change, but now like, you know, water makes me calm. I want a river. I want a lake. I want a stream. I want the sea and I want nature and like fresh air. And so, I mean, people have asked me sometimes like, if you, you know, if you got paid like a whole bunch of money, would you go back to Beijing not to live? Like I, my health is more important now. And um, I, I loved it there, but I just don't think it's, it's good long-term. So when I decided to leave China, <clears throat> it took me a bit longer actually, because like I, I quit my job at CRI with the intention that I was going to be moving to Germany within the next three months. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately I ran into all sorts of visa issues that yeah. like I literally went through all of my savings in like a period of three months because I had to go to Hong Kong twice. Um, and I, yeah, I, I mean, I basically went through like 14, 15,000 Kwai, like in the, in just several weeks. Wow. And that was kind of when I was really, um, just disappointed with China, to be honest, because I was just like, you know, I'm trying to leave. And it was just like that constant not knowing. I mean, I understand that also like being an American comes with, you know, like I have friends who, for example, are from like Syria or um, like Russia and they've had way worse, you know, visa problems or whatever. So I do recognize that like my American passport is a, something that I'm fortunate to have. And so my visa problems are not comparable to some of my friends, but still having said that, it's just like that constant instability of not knowing if you might have to just leave to Hong Kong tomorrow and then never be able to come back. And your whole life is like in your apartment, like all of your things, that's the only life you have. And um, I think sometimes people don't understand. They're like, well, you could just always go home. I'm like, I don't have a home in the United States. Like my home was in China. My home is wherever I am that I make, you know, like the home is where you make it kind of thing. Um, so like, I don't want to pick up and just have to leave my whole life in my, you know, my books, my things, my, that's me. That's part of my identity. Like, and not knowing if you can come back from Hong Kong and get that stuff. Cause I know people who like, weren't able to do it. Like, you know, just, you have to leave one day and you can never come back. Like, and that's, that's a very scary thing to have. I don't know hanging over you that the, the regulations could change tomorrow and you just lose your whole life. And you're literally homeless. I mean, yeah. then or before or now, what were your options for going back home? Like, could you go live with your parents? Did you have somebody to, to stay with? What was it? What did you have a plan B to be in the States? Let's say. I never had the plan to go back to the U S like, um, you know, like I, 
after I, I left, you know, like um, to move to China, I mean, I thought I would go to Argentina, but I, I didn't feel like going to the US. And it's not that like there's anything wrong with the US. I just never felt like I really fit there. Um, there's just so many things that happened over the last couple of years. Like I feel much more comfortable in Europe. Like I always wanted to live in Europe. I love European things. I like that there's healthcare. I like the mentality in general of like work-life balance and finding quality and things and taking the extra time to make like better food and like um, taking the time to take your vacation days and like, you know, the way that they, they give like paternity leave and maternity leave and you get like two months holiday and people value, there's like a, just a different value system here. It's on time and like, it's not so much on things. And I feel like in the United States, a lot of times we're, we don't have the time, the quality time that we need. And so we end up kind of buying things to compensate for that, you know, because we're always so busy and you're always like, I feel like everything is a lot of time is spent on like maintenance. So like, if you have a free day, what are you doing? You're washing your car or like, you know, you're cleaning the gutters or you're like painting the house or, um, and whereas here, and this is Bavaria, like, obviously I haven't lived everywhere in, in Europe, but I find that they value like on a free time. Okay. We're going to go to the lake. We're going to take a picnic, you know, and, um, but, but you've been in Munich since 2012. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. How does it feel? <laughs> this is the longest I've been in one place for a long time. I mean, since my teens. Why? Why did you stay? What is it about Munich? Um, I think before I really liked the freedom to be able to pick up and move all the time. Because um, that was kind of a big part of who I was. Because I, I, I really like exploring and I wanted to be able to go someplace and study for a while or go someplace and work for a while. But when I moved to Germany, like I had decided that whether or not the relationship with my ex was going to work out, like I was going to move and start another life there. Plus, it's like I signed up for to do my master's degree. Um, I was like, OK, I'm going to do my master's degree. That's two years. And then I will just work afterwards. And also tell me about this master's. Oh, so the master's was a media and communications management. So I found like a, an international school that did like the degree in English. Um, and I was able to do like a little you know, side, they call it like work student, like work student uh, side job while you're um, doing your master's degree and your thesis and stuff like that. But the idea was once I moved here, I was like, I'm not, I don't want to go anywhere else. Like I'm here now. This is where I will create my life. And regardless of whatever happened in the relationship, like this was my life, you know? And it was kind of funny because after that didn't work out, a lot of people were like, so where are you going to go? Yeah. Yeah. Nowhere. I'm like, this is, I I made a life here, like (laughs) with or without him, I made my life here and I'm staying. And plus I'm very grateful to have the chance to have like a visa to, to be here, like after my master's and after working here and stuff like that. And I see that as like, I feel so grateful that I have that, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Cause Europe's not that easy to be in. I mean, even as an American, you can't just like cool out for a year without a reason, you know? Like it is different than going to Bali or going to Thailand. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the Southeast Asian countries, you can rock up and do that, you know. Or even Mexico, you can just pay for your visa. I mean, like when I lived there, like I think I went 
this was 20 years ago, so I don't remember exactly, but like, I think I went every six months and I just would like get in another visa. Right, right, right. You just pay. And, like, and you, um, you could do that in China for a long time. Yeah. So you got to Munich and you did a two years master's, mm-hmm. um, 2012, 2014. So then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I need so a whiteboard. It's funny. Well, so then, I mean, like my focus um, turned from journalism more into marketing communications. And so I've just worked for some startups in Munich. I did work for like um, the European Patent Office for a while, working on the written material that they do. For example, they had like a new office in The Hague and they needed like a booklet on it. And they also had these, um, these video scripts for the European Inventor Award that they need to have like written and edited and stuff like that. Were you around for very cool patents? Like, were you privy to like what was being protected? Like what was being invented? Um, the European Adventure Award, that was a really cool project. Getting to know, for example, like who was going to win the, the European Adventure Award in like for like a tech invention or whatever, or like in biology and chemistry or something. That was really cool. What I was doing was, I mean, it was more from the media side, like, but so they have all these different departments. So you don't come in contact with like the, the patent officers and stuff like that. Like the only time that I got to see anything that was actually kind of cool, it was um, a dispute for the hepatitis C vaccine. And who was the company anyway, but they wanted to retain their patent and Doctors Without Borders were trying to get the generic version of the drug and stuff like that. Because what they were saying was, you can't retain the patent and not license it to other companies like in India and Brazil and stuff like that, so that you can make a generic version of this hepatitis C drug. And it was very interesting because I had never, I mean, first of all, like these pharma companies have the most power lawyers you have ever seen in your life. Like I, I have never been so impressed. And, and the Doctors Without Borders, like they had a really good lawyer, but it was kind of strange to me because, I mean, they had like a lot of supporters from them. And there were some people who had like a bunch of picket signs and stuff like that. And people who were barefoot, like kind of some like hippie followers, which I don't think, to be honest, helped their case because they were kind of walking into the European patent office without any shoes, with their like signs and stuff like that. I thought that was very interesting because it just kind of seemed like they made a bit of a mockery of the whole hmm. proceedings. The, these barefoot people that walk in, I, I can understand that happening in the States where, uh, you know, the masses will say, well, this is not right. And we need to fight this. And they sign positions and it's just not as effective. And it just doesn't happen as often as the lawyers getting together and being like, okay, this is how we can hurt the law or create the law or hide the law. I mean, obviously COVID has opened our eyes to a lot of these Mm -hmm. um, inequalities and differences in access. I mean, in the States, the only entity that's really keeping us honest is the EU, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like those kind of places in Europe just do, are much more transparent, but maybe I'm completely, Mm -hmm. who knows? I think especially in terms of oversight for things like like even, even if you just take something like meat, you know, like the, the, the way, like the regulations that they have for how meat can be packaged and processed here and stuff like that. And is so much different than the way that it is in the States. Like in the way that you like the, you know, grade F 
chicken or whatever that you buy in the States, like that's not even allowed to happen here because of certain regulations. And it's because the consumers demand better, you know, and the government's like, okay, now we have to change. But in the States, I feel like there's just not enough people caring Mm -hmm. where their food comes from and what it's doing to their body. Yeah, it's, it's strange because also I just feel that in, in Europe, it's a very normal, also Asia and like, you know, a lot of places, but the idea of just eating fresh food is not something spectacularly elitist or something. It's just the way that people eat, you know, they go to the markets in the morning and they get like fresh stuff. And I feel like, I mean, and everything that I buy in, in Germany for, I mean, except for like cheeses and stuff like that is like organic or bio or whatever, because there's not such a price discrepancy. Like, I mean, for milk, if you get like, you know, like the, the liter of milk, it's like, 89 cents or something like that for the regular one and if you want the one that's organic it's like one euro so it's like that price discrepancy like you're just like okay fine like I'll I'll pay the extra 20 cents because I know that it's local and it's you know better for me and it doesn't have all the hormones and stuff like that in it but I think the difference I remember going to Whole Foods with my dad and they had like a quart of milk and it was like five dollars like which is just crazy but I think The difference here is that people, I mean, in terms of the mentality, people expect the politicians to take care of them. Whereas I feel in the States, everybody has gotten to this point of just accepting or expecting that politicians won't do anything for them. So nothing ever really changes, but like, so you can abstain from something and just be like, fine, I'm not going to drink milk anymore because whatever, but that doesn't change the way that milk is produced in the United States, because as the consumer, if the consumer demand is we need to have organic milk be at a regular price and we demand that politicians say you cannot charge more than, I don't know, X, Y, Z price for a court, then if everybody demands that, then the price will go down and then the demand for that kind of milk will go up and we have more of it and it's cheaper. But so what, so I have some very, you know, normal questions that I ask every, everybody about like how German are you? What are the things that you've adopted wholeheartedly? It's made me much more eco-conscious, for example, because I think what I've noticed and I was really impressed about is everyone recycles. Um, And I know like, I mean, and it's very organized and they have like certain bins for everything, but everybody recycles. Um, I feel that health is just overall such a priority here and I think that's one of the bigger things that I've noticed like here everybody is always hiking and biking and walking and like doing a class you know for uh, fencing or doing a class for Zumba they're hiking on the weekend they're water skiing on the weekend they're like everyone is always doing something active Mm -hmm. that's the biggest difference I noticed from anywhere else that I lived it's just people really value health. I mean, and there's also a physical part of it. Like, I mean, Munich, everybody, they say that like everybody wants to look really good and like buff or whatever, which is probably true. But I mean, you see these like women with three kids and they're like, they've got rock hard abs. And you're just like, that is so amazing. And I feel that sometimes in the States, there's only, there's only the idea about being thin and it has nothing to do with fitness. It's like, Mm -hmm. you either have, I feel like in the States we have so like all or nothing, you know, you're either like somebody who goes to the gym for five hours and eats only shakes, drinks only shakes, or you want to starve yourself on 800 calories and sit on your couch all day and lose weight. And like, nobody focuses on 
do I exercise because I like it and I realize that it's good for my mental health and because I want to take care of myself, you know, versus like, can I just look good in a bikini? Like, and I feel that health is such a normal component in terms of having holiday times, taking rest. Like if you're sick, just staying home. Like I swear to God in, in, in the US, you just like show up dead for work because you're, you know, you're totally sick and coughing all over everybody. And here they were like, what are you trying to prove? You're going to get us all sick, go home. And I think now after COVID, it's even more like, you know, if you show up for, for work sick, they'd be like, what are you doing? Stop being selfish. What are you trying to prove? Just go home, take care of yourself. And that is such a weird mentality for me to get used to. Cause I would be like, I don't know if I could take a sick day or whatever. And everyone's like, stop being American. Seriously, go home. <laughs> That's you know? Did you get that a lot in the beginning? Stop being American. I mean, you, I mean, I'm surprised that, that that's something that you got. Like, are there other things that would that you can't get rid of that are quintessentially American? I think for me, like, I do want to be liked by everyone. You know, mm. I want to be good with everyone, which is what I hear, not a very German trait. They're just like, okay, this is the truth. You don't like the truth. Okay, you don't like me. That's fine. <laughs> At least we are honest with each other. It's like, and a lot of Europeans, Northern Europeans really have this great middle ground where, you know, they're not trying to be mean, but they will tell you if you have gotten fat. I, I don't know if that's true where you are, but, you know, people will be like, yeah, I used to be fat or she got fat or, you know, I put on some weight. I need to get healthy. Not in a way that's like, you should feel bad about yourself because you don't look good in a bikini, but hey, we should all be honest with each other and say like, hey, this guy got fat. Like we should invite him to go biking. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants to go hiking? Fat guy, come. <laughs> Yeah, I think that I think in a in a business setting, I definitely have learned, um, like in a working environment, especially after being in China, where I feel like sometimes you can't get a straight answer. I found it really refreshing in Germany how direct and and straightforward and and not in a rude way. I wouldn't say that like in the office. I mean, maybe because they they're trying to sugarcoat it slightly because they know over American, but they'll try to be like, okay, I really liked this here's what you could work on. Like, you know, if it's a presentation, like they always say what the, the positive things about it, but they will tell you directly if something, it wasn't what they wanted, you know? And I, and I really appreciate that because I feel like it helps you know where you stand with people. And I noticed that in a couple of work situations with my American colleagues in the States, that some of that transparency was lost and there would be kind of this passive aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not like solely American. Like I was, it happens in a lot of different places. But I feel like it's less common here because people are generally like upfront about things. Hmm. And um, apparently I've picked up, like I, I tend to plan more here, like hmm. under general circumstances in terms of travel, I used to never do that. I'm very hmm. spontaneous. But here in Germany, if you're spontaneous in terms of like a last minute flight, you're going to pay eight times more because the Germans all planned six months <laughs> ago. And especially when it's destinations where, I mean, Germans travel all over the place. And so, you know, that they've booked their stuff. <laughs> and so you're going to get the leftovers if you don't learn to plan and like manage your, manage your trips better. You, so I think that's a really good point to bring up that Germans travel a lot. So you're possibly surrounded by peers that have traveled. Uh, I've heard how difficult it is to learn German, but are people more accepting that you are learning? 
the, the language? Are they okay to speak English sometimes? Or how, how is that? What's always challenging for me is that in every language that I learn, I'm a, I mean, I'm a communicator. Like I like talking to people. Like I like little small talk. I like random conversations. I like, you know, um, and so it means that like in German, like I can speak, but my grammar is not very good because I'm less, you know, focused on, is it correct? Because when I was so focused on, is it correct? I was just freeze and I couldn't talk about anything. <laughs> I couldn't even order a coffee because I'm like, ah, you got to get an einen Kaffee, einen Kaffee. I didn't coffee. I didn't coffee. You know, like, is it, is it gender, you know, like, is it masculine, feminine, neutral? And I'd sit there for like five minutes just trying to order a coffee. And so finally, I'm like, okay, this is, this is a bad strategy. Like, I'm just going to do conversation. What if I just point and say, Jago, Jago? Yeah, yeah. Well, Jago, Jago, coffee. Look at those shots yet. But you can't do that. So you have to, you have to bust out the German at some point, but like how I know how limiting that can be in, in China. And it's frustrating. It's definitely something that I've tried to work, you know, to, to combat, but it's really difficult to get to a level of fluency that possibly you have found in Spanish. So where are you? Are you, is your Spanish still way more fluent or are you like mm -hmm. Chinese struggling, you know? Where's your Italian and all this? How many languages, Andrea? So, so it's really funny. I was doing, I did for my, my Instagram, actually, like a brain scramble because I've, I always kind of wondered, okay, how many languages can fit into Andrea's brain in some capacity? The answer to that is five, okay? But it doesn't mean that they're all like, so if you think, this is my analogy. If you think of like my languages as like little radio dials, okay? So English, it's like a 10. Okay. So I also studied it, you know, English. I can also know the grammar, like being a writer and stuff like that. My Spanish now, I would say it probably is like an eight and a half. So like, I mean, I, I went to university in Spanish. I had, you know, my ex-boyfriend of eight years was Mexican. So like that, that is not going away, even though it's slightly rustier now, just because of the pandemic, I haven't been out to, you know, speak it or whatever, but I still, I mean, like I do coaching even in Spanish, hmm. my Italian, hmm was fluent i'd say that like so you've got italian and then you have chinese and then you have german and the weird thing about those last three is that when one goes up the other one goes down so it's like when i focus on my chinese my italian goes down when i focus on my italian my chinese goes down and when i focus on my german then the other two go down i don't know how to like remedy that yeah <laughs> but it's i did this really funny video um for my instagram because i was like I wonder if I could tell the last 20 years of my life using these languages, <laughs> start in English and then go into Spanish and then went into Italian and then back to Spanish and then to Chinese and then to German. <laughs> wow. And tell me, convince me that life coaching is not as cringy as it sounds because Last time I talked to you, you were doing marketing for the like healthcare company. Mm -hmm. What prompted this life change, first of all? Yeah, no, so what happened was, okay, so our company was owned by AstraZeneca and they basically dissolved half the company. So I got laid off Whoa. and then I got another job and then COVID happened. And then I got laid off of that because they also <laughs> got rid of some people. Um, and that was really 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 disappointing because I really loved that job and that was one of the places where my colleagues were absolutely amazing and they laid off 75 people 
wow. one morning. Um, we were all pretty devastated about it. And I started kind of thinking about like, okay, is marketing communications, is this like what I'm really here for? So I have been doing a lot of personal growth with myself and I really wished um, at different points in my life where I always have to figure it out by myself in my own way that I actually had had any guidance, you know? And then as soon as that reorganization happened, I was like, okay, this is a sign. Like I, I should do something totally different. And maybe this is the time for me to do this. If not now, when? Um, and I found this like webinar for Anima Center for Coaching and okay. it's based out of the UK. And it's, what was really cool about the whole program is that you have your own coach during the time that you're learning about coaching. And so it's always helpful with clients because being an expat, this is my, you know, this is my life and this is who I want to help because I also know that during this time, a lot of expats has really struggled as I have like not being able to see your family. For, I haven't seen my dad in two years and that's really, really hard. And just kind of having a situation where you're like, wow, I can't, I cannot go home. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Um, and what oh. if something happens? I can't, I can't go. Um, and a lot of the people that I was coaching were expats who lost their jobs, yeah. who were with a partner, had a breakup. A lot of people broke up during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> um, working from home, you know, like, and, <laughs> and there's all of those different things that you know, extra challenges and fears and difficulties that come with being like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm alone now, mm-hmm. like during a pandemic, not mm-hmm. with my partner anymore. And I've lost my job. Like, where do I even go? And it seemed like one of the things that people struggle with, with personal growth is like accountability. And you don't want to be that person. Or a lot of people have told me that they don't like telling their friends about like, you know, what they're doing with their personal growth. Like, Hey, I'm working on like setting boundaries. And like, I'm, tra- I'm realizing my, yeah. my attachment style in the relationship. And that's, you know, <laughs> understanding my own emotional needs and being able to articulate them and communicate them. And so there are a lot of topics that like, we feel so kind of self-conscious telling people about the areas where we realize that we want to work on. And it's much easier with a coach for somebody to kind of help you through that to get clarity. The idea of learning to be self-aware and having a life coach to kind of help you figure out, okay, I don't know why, but this area doesn't feel good. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to change it. So that's usually where a life coach can be like, okay, well, how would you like it to be? What's your outcome? And um, I find that like most people in terms of personal growth haven't had the chance to really look like. Um, you know, like, what are my values? How are they aligned with other areas of my life? You know, and what are my belief systems that I have about myself and about the world? So you have this offer where you do a discovery session, which I love that word discovery. I just, you know, makes me tingly inside. <laughs> discovered a lot. I mean, like what your initial interaction with somebody, I'm an expat, what is our first interaction. What do we say to each other? What do you say to me? So the discovery call is really just like a kind of a, let's have a coffee, like, tell me about yourself. And then like, where do you feel that you are right now in your life? You know, sometimes people come with very specific things and sometimes people are just like, okay, I know that I have a habit of self-sabotaging myself in this situation, or maybe I am the kind of person who 
tends to get into specific patterns when it comes to dating, you know, um, and maybe like I get my boundaries crossed and I explode, but maybe I'm not very articulate and I don't know why I feel uncomfortable, but I do. And so like they kind of want to explore different, um, like I said, areas of their personality that they could work on because most people, if they're really honest, they know, I mean, you know what your issues are. You know, you're like, okay, I procrastinate. I wait till the last minute. I totally stress myself out and get myself a panic attack because <laughs> before the deadline and it, and you're like, okay, so how is that working for you? And they're like, it sucks. Like, I don't know why I do this to myself every time. <laughs> like, and I would like to try to get some better habits and patterns or whatever. So not do this. Or like not saying um, their emotional needs to their partner and then like exploding about something totally small and pointless. Yeah, or completely unrelated and being like, whoop, whoop, loop-de-loop, and that's why I'm pissed. It's like, wait, what? Where are we right now? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Uh, What makes a good client? What should I come to you having known about myself or what kind of attitude should I have? I think that what makes a good client is somebody who's motivated to change, even if they're not quite sure how, because the the how is something that comes with the life coaching that a good coach can help you kind of explore, okay, what are you happy with? What are you not happy with? And that that can also be a bit difficult because it takes a a degree of honesty and self-awareness and self-reflection because sometimes you know, you, you have stories that you tell yourself all the time, like, yeah, but I can't do something because blah, 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 blah. And I, I'm not the kind of person who blah, 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 blah. And when somebody kind of like shows you a mirror and it's like, you know, like, oh, I could never do that. And you're like, who says, well, I could just never do that. Well, who says? <laughs> and if you, if you find out like people have all of these, these assumptions that they're making on a constant basis and the story that they tell themselves that kind of reinforces whatever excuse that they're making that they're not willing to look at and one of the things that I've learned I think like because mostly I mean most of what I can help people with is stuff that I've learned yeah (laughs) you know know what I mean like the challenges of being an expat the challenges of being in a foreign country kind of all of the things that go along with identity and feelings of helplessness the conflicts that you have between wanting freedom and then stability Um, And the conflicts between like wanting fun versus like happiness and trying to understand like, okay, am I really happy? I have a lot of fun in my life. Do I really have fulfillment? Like (laughs) versus like, (laughs) exactly. Or like, I really, really want freedom, but I also want stability. And like, those are kind of two conflicting ideas that I think most expats struggle with because they want to be able to a lot of times pick up and leave and just like, hey, shiny object. I'm going to move to Thailand. (laughs) (laughs) but then on the other hand they're like why can't I have a stable relationship because you're not in one place for a long time (laughs) and nobody else does either and so those are some of the conflicts that expats have of like trying to figure out how do I how do I find balance in this like I don't want to give up all of my freedom and not be able to travel and move if I want to but I also would like to have like a family and a you know a stable life and a job where I can know that I'm going to have a paycheck and I can actually think long-term about things and all of those things clash you know at some point like one want is going to trump another want and I Mm -hmm. think in my experience I have to choose you know I can Mm -hmm. have it all but I can't have it all right now you Mm -hmm. know and if I want this thing I'm gonna have to put this thing on the back burner and sometimes myself included there's no way to separate this because it really does feel like it's so intertwined that you go 
you know, I'm going to move countries and then all my problems will be solved. And actually what you're doing is running away from that thing or you're putting it in a different context. So you don't have to think about what are your habits? What are mm -hmm. the things that are really keeping you back? Or um, what is your tagline? Get, get out of your own damn way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much because I could hear your voice saying it. Get social with Andrea on her socials, tag her in your own multilingual videos, and wherever you are, whatever you are, you need to just get out the way.